So what's the release date, Daniel? Late March. Late March. We're looking for Easter. So look forward to that CD coming out. You know, um, I think it was summer of 1923, there was a squadron of destroyers that were traveling south from the San Francisco Bay to the San Diego Bay. They were led by Commodore Edward Watson on the flagship destroyer USS Delphi, and all were Clemson-class destroyers less than five years old. The ships turned east, supposedly heading into the Santa Barbara Channel, and the ships were navigating by what they called dead reckoning. Um, That is, they were uh, estimating positions based on course and speed. At that time, the radio navigation aids were new, and the captains did not trust them fully. And so the USS Delphi, the lead ship, was equipped with a radio navigation uh, receiver, but the navigator and the captain ignored its indicated bearings, believing them to be erroneous. Um, No effort was made to take soundings of water depths due to the necessity of slowing the ships down to take the measurements, and the ships were performing an exercise that simulated wartime conditions, hence the decision was made not to slow down to take the necessary measurements. In this case, the dead reckoning was wrong, dead wrong, and the mistakes were fatal. There was heavy fog, and Commodore Watson, in spite of that, ordered all the ships to travel in close formation, and traveling at 20 knots, suddenly the USS Delphi smashed broadside into the Rocky Point uh, shoreline. The force of the collision of welded steel and jagged rock split the hull of the USS Delphi in half, and one by one, the other destroyers following the Delphi's lead smashed into the rocks, and the result was the loss of seven destroyers. Uh, you can see a number of them in that photograph. Twenty-three sailors died. It still stands as one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in history. The moral of the story is, don't follow that boat, right? Don't follow that guy. Don't follow that example. See, the redemptive power of a bad example lies in not following it. And today, the the writer of Hebrews, as Daniel's already alluded, um, summons up an example from the pages of the Old Testament that he wants us not to follow. Okay. He says, do not follow this example. And you'll find it in the pages of your Bible in Hebrews chapter 3. We'll return to our study of Hebrews today and find your way there. And I'd like to pray for our time in the scriptures. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us now by your word. Protect us by your word. And I pray that your spirit would not let any of us um, push it away. Um, Hear it not. So Lord, press it deep in us. We need these words. Um, Help us to hear them now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's review where we left off two weeks ago. We'll start in verse 18 of chapter 2. Um, it says, 
being uh, he himself, that's Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The writer wants us to consider Jesus, the one who, as he said, is greater than the angels and yet has come among us as one of us in chapter 2. Consider Jesus, who is greater than the greatest of leaders in Israel's history, greater than Moses himself, greater than Moses the way a builder is greater than the house that he builds, than a son is greater than a servant. Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's been telling us Jesus is greater because Jesus is God. Jesus is God, he insists. And at the close of our passage a couple weeks ago, we heard this promise in verse 6 of chapter 3. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So here, here's the offer of this treasure, right? To be Christ's house, to be a member of Christ's house in a sense, a member of his family, under the care of a merciful and faithful high priest, of the builder of all things, of the very Son of God. And the writer says, we are that house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And Jesus is integral to that confidence. He is our our hope. So if we hold fast to Jesus, then we are his house, his people, his family. But we have to hold fast. That is what the people of Jesus' house do. We hold fast to him. And he's telling us, make sure you hold fast to him because not everyone will. Bart Campolo, his father's a um, famous Christian sociologist, Tony Campolo. He's a former pastor and a published Christian author. Um, He recounts how he became a Christian in high school. He said he was drawn to Christianity by the sense of community and the common commitment to love people, promote justice, and transform the world. And significantly, he says, all the dogma and the death and resurrection of Jesus stuff was not the attraction. He says his, his first step away from orthodoxy occurred while he was doing inner city ministry near Philadelphia and Bart encountered a girl who had been gang raped at age nine. And he decided that if he was going to remain a Christian, he had to believe that God did not authorize that child's rape and was not in control of the world. Then as a student at Haverford College in 1981, two of Bart's roommates came out to him as gay, and he decided that I was going to make room for gay people in my theology, and I became very open about the fact that I would ignore certain Bible verses and underline others, he said. Having rejected the sovereignty of God and the authority of the Bible, Bart then became a universalist. He said, I was only interested in a God who would save everybody. It didn't matter that the Bible had some verses that had said something different. 
said I started rejecting the supernatural stuff. Next, the orthodoxy. I no longer believe God does miracles or that Jesus was raised from the dead or that other religions were false. He said my Christianity had died the death of a thousand nicks and cuts. It wasn't until a biking accident in 2011 that he lost whatever remained of his tattered faith. He says, while recovering, I thought, when this body dies, I think that will be the end of Bart Campolo. I don't think I will be going anywhere. I don't believe in eternal life in that way anymore. And so today, former pastor, former Christian author, Bart Campolo, serves as the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. He has denied his faith. See, we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast to our confidence, who is Christ, if we hold fast, the writer says. And John Piper is particularly helpful in these matters. He says, notice first that this condition if we hold fast to hope, is a condition for being something now. Verse 6 does not say you will become God's house if you hold fast to hope. It says we are God's house if we hold fast to our confidence and hope. He says it's like saying you are a southerner if you pronounce um, then President Ronald Reagan's wife's name Nancy instead of Nancy. So talking like this does not make you a southerner. It shows that you are one. Okay. See, the writer of Hebrews is concerned about that if. He writes to encourage us to make that if a reality for us, a surety for us, to make Holding fast to Jesus, the description of every last one of us. And that, that's what he continues to do now in chapter 3. Um, the latter part of chapter 3. He is helping us hold fast to Jesus even when times are impossibly hard for us. And he does it which is no surprise, by quoting the Old Testament one more time. He loves to quote the Old Testament, and he seems especially fond of the Psalms. And so this time, in verse 7, he is quoting from Psalm 95. And he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's interesting. You notice how he introduces the, the psalm that he wants to quote in verse 7? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. He believes that the Old Testament and the Psalms are the inspired words of the Spirit of God. Um, nothing less. Just because it's the Old Testament doesn't mean it's not God's testament to us. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us today through the Old Testament. 
And what he does then is he quotes the back end of Psalm 95. And I think it'd be helpful for us to go back to Psalm 95 and hear a little bit of the front end of Psalm 95 first. It reads like this. It might be familiar to you. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's saying God is greater than. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. For he made it and his hands formed the dry land. He's saying God is the creator of all things. Oh come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Um, Today. If you hear his voice, he says, and he goes on now to quote, um, goes on to what we're going to quote in Hebrews 3, starting down in verse 8 through 11. He says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof Though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my wrath. And it's interesting, this psalm, it's kind of like the early chapters of Hebrews. It's like a preview. Because it says the same things we're hearing from Hebrews. God is greater than any other gods. He's the maker of all things. And now we're being warned about following God's people of old into judgment. And what we, so what we have here is in Hebrews 3 is Scripture quoting Scripture that quotes Scripture. Okay, So you have Hebrews 3 quoting Psalm 95 that's looking back at Numbers 13 and 14. Which, if you're looking for something to read on your afternoon of rest today, read Numbers 13 and 14 after what, we've, what we'll go through this morning. Um, Israel, back in Numbers, has been gloriously delivered from slavery in Egypt. Remember the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, all that went into their miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And now they, they stand in Numbers 13 and 14, on the edge of the land that God had promised them where they would experience God's rest from their sufferings. And so God directs Moses to send in spies, one from every tribe. There's a dozen of them. Two of those 12 spies return and say, the land is fabulous. Let's trust God and take it. That's Joshua and Caleb. The other ten say, but there are giants in the land, and they will eat us before we get to eat the food of the land. And so those ten turn the people against Moses and against God, and this leads to legendary grumbling. I mean, this is grumbling that shames teenage grumbling. This is, this is legendary grumbling. Here's an example from Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night at the spies' report. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, 
Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It got so bad, if you drop down to verse 10 in chapter 14 of Numbers, that they wanted to stone Moses with stones. They're going to stone him with vegetables or clothing items. They're going to stone him with stones. Okay, Legendary grumbling. One writer said, they began so well and they ended so poorly. Right? They started miraculous deliverance and trusting God and, you know, and it ended with this tragic grumbling. The writer of Hebrews today is telling us, don't follow this example. Okay? Don't be like these guys. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And he quotes Psalm 95 there. And it's interesting Psalm to, to quote. Uh, Professor William Lane says that this passage was thoroughly familiar to his readers because it served as the call to worship every Sabbath evening when the synagogue community gathered together each week. Week after week, those who attended the synagogue were called to listen attentively to the voice of God in Scripture with these sober words, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Every week, they were reminded of this lesson. Don't follow this example. Do not, do not follow their example. Listen to, heed the voice of God. Don't follow their example. And it was a warning about the terrible consequences that happened to those who let their hearts grow hard and unbelieving. Ken Hughes says no one who was over 20 at the exodus when they left Egypt entered the land, the promised land, God's rest for them. He said, Except for Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, the rest, he says, filled a million sandy graves during the next 38 years. So an entire generation was wiped out in judgment due to unbelief. Hard-hearted unbelief. So don't let your hearts grow cold and hard towards God. Whatever you do, don't follow their example and drift away. The Apostle Paul comments about this same grumbling and judgment incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Don't let what happened to them happen to you. Don't follow their example. 
which raises the question, how do we not fall into what an entire generation fell into of hard-hearted unbelief? How can we make sure that when times are hard, we don't cease to trust God and, and instead begin to grumble and doubt God's goodness and care for us? And This is where the writer turns next in verse 12. He begins to address helping us know how we can stay faithful. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So take care, watch out, beware, be on your guard. It could happen to any one of us. See, a whole generation succumbed to unbelief in the desert, in the wilderness. A pastor, a, band, a published Christian author, abandons God and ends up a humanistic chaplain. It could happen to any one of us. It could happen to professors. It can happen to seminary students. It can happen to small group leaders. It could happen to me. It could happen to you. Heed the warning of Proverbs chapter 4. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. And he tells us how. Verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's how you take care. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, here's, here's the, the key to not falling into heart-hearted unbelief. Exhort one another every day. Every day. Exhort. Okay? And it's, uh, the language that he uses is really rich. It uh, gets brought into English in a lot of different ways. Exhort. Encourage. Implore. Comfort. Invite. Beg. Plead. Urge. It's the, the imagery of coming alongside someone or calling them alongside you so you can journey together. Okay. So the way to guard your heart from becoming hard and drifting into unbelief is to have people who call you alongside of them while they follow Christ. Someone who will urge and plead and encourage and exhort and pray for you. We all need people like that, especially in the hardest of times. We need people like that. There was an article in the Chicago Tribune in 2009 told the story of an amazing lady, um, Betty Tucker. Uh, Betty is a Christian cook who worked the night shift at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. She'd been doing that job for 43 years when she retired in 2009, um, 28 of them on the night shift. And at the children's hospital, she sees a steady stream of parents coming through in her job. Many of them are frightened and weary. Uh, one night, when the article was being written, Miss Betty, everybody calls her Miss Betty, 
served food to a mother whose three-year-old fell out of a second-story window that morning, another mother whose 17-year-old was battling a rare form of leukemia, and a third mother whose 18-year-old had endured seven hours of brain surgery. Their stories break the heart of Miss Betty, the article says, and as one co-worker interviewed for the article says, that's why she feeds every last one of them as if they had walked right into her kitchen at her too small uh, little brick bungalow on the south side of Chicago where she lives. A member of the hospital's housekeeping crew adds this about Miss Betty. She says, you need someone to bring you life, and she brings it in the middle of the night. Um, There's a picture of Miss Betty. She's got a big old smile, and it says, it's hard to imagine how much that smile would mean to a suffering parent or child. Miss Betty says, when I ask, how you doing today? And they say, it's not a good day. I say, don't lose hope. When the nurses tell me it's a bad night, I say, I understand it's a bad night, but guess what? I am here for you. I'm going to get you through the night. There's another picture in the article that shows Betty sitting down, head bowed, praying over a meal. She says, I'm a praying lady. I pray every night for every room and every person in that hospital. She says, I start with the basement and I go up floor by floor, room by room. I pray for the children. I pray for the families. I pray for the nurses. And I pray for the doctors. And I say every night while I'm driving on the expressway, oh Lord, I don't know what I'll face tonight, but I pray you'll guide me through. Everybody needs somebody like Miss Betty, right? But Miss Betty retired in 2009. So, when you head to the children's wing of the hospital, who's going with you? Who's calling you alongside their faith so that in the hardest of times, you are encouraged and exhorted and pled with and urged and prayed for that you might stay faithful. You might hold firm to Christ. You have somebody like that? You better get somebody like that. The writer of Hebrews is saying, it's that kind of brother, it's that kind of sister that comes alongside and encourages, that keeps your heart from hardening when things are hard. So you better find somebody. You better find them fast because the writer says that you need it every single day. As long as it's called today. Not just Sundays, okay? Can't be me. Not just Sundays. This is not enough. Every day. Are you that person for someone? Are you in friendships where you come alongside your friends when they are suffering and you exhort and you encourage and you pray and you plead that they would follow Christ and not drift away into unbelief? Uh, Mary Cooper teaches preschool in Lowell, Michigan, and she tells this story. She says, one of my preschool students had a habit of patting me on the seat of my pants. 
She said, I tried several things to make him stop, but nothing worked. Finally, I resorted to a timeout chair. And later, when his father came to pick him up, I quietly mentioned the problem, asking whether he had any insight on the situation. And smiling, the father explained his son's fascination with football and his curiosity as to why the players spanked each other. He says, I told my son that they were telling each other what a good job they were doing. <laughs> and she says, evidently the same thing applied to me. <laughs> so as we tell our children, use your words, right? Use your words, church. But we need to encourage each other. Okay? Or our hearts can grow hard and pull us into unbelief. You know, I, I have been the pastor of Northwake Church for more than 25 years. It's amazing for a guy who's only 35 years old. Um, it's a phenomenal thing. Um, but every once in a while, you know, somebody will say, oh, how do you, how's that happen? And one of the ways it happens is I am surrounded by people who encourage me, who by their life example and by their words, they're constantly saying to me, come and follow Christ with me. Come and follow Christ with me. Let's love Jesus well. Let's trust him when it's hard. Let's, let's follow him to the end. Let's finish well. Um, so I, I have... I have elders on one side and, and staff in front of me and my small group behind me and my wife beside me. I am surrounded by people who by their life and by their words encourage me. By God's grace, I am probably one of the most encouraged people on the planet and I need that. I need that. I would have quit long ago if I was alone in this. I need that. We all need that. He's telling us, you need this. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, if indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Does that sound familiar? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Just like verse 6 that we saw at the end of our last passage. It's that if again. If we hold our confidence, our faith in Christ to the end. And again, listen, listen to John Piper who's helpful on this. He says, notice the wording carefully. It does not say we will become partakers of Christ in the future if we hold fast to our assurance it says we have become partakers in the past if we hold fast our assurance in other words the holding fast to our assurance verifies that something real and lasting has happened to us namely we became partakers of Christ we were truly born again we were truly converted we were truly made part of Christ's house what then would be the conclusion if we do not hold fast to our assurance? 
The answer is not that you stop being a partaker of Christ, but that you never had become a partaker of Christ. Read it carefully, he says. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to our assurance. And so, he says you could say, if we do not hold fast to our confession, then we have not become partakers of Christ. Our perseverance is what assures us of our faith. It evidences our faith if we persevere to the end. We want to finish strong. We want to follow Jesus all the way to the end, no matter what shape that takes. We want to finish strong. We want to pick up the pace. In his um, leadership book, Good to Great, Jim Collins writes about a coaching staff at a cross-country team that had become a state dynasty. Uh, they had won the state championship the last two years. They had, been, uh, they had gone from uh, a good team to a great team um, where they are consistent contenders for the cha- state championship on the boys and girls team. And this is their simple strategy. We run best at the end. We run best at the end of workouts. We run best at the end of races. We run best at the end of the season when it counts the most. Everything is geared to this simple idea and the coaching staff knows how to create this effect than any other, any other team in the state. For example, he says they place a coach at the two mile mark of a 3.1 mile race to collect data as the runners go past. Then the coaches calculate not how fast the runners go, but how many competitors they pass at the end of the race from mile two to the finish. The kids then learn to pace themselves and race with confidence. They think, we run best at the end, so if I'm hurting bad, then my competitors must hurt a whole lot worse. you got to love cross-country, right? I love the shirts my daughter used to wear. My sport is your sport's punishment, right? Um, we are training for the end of the race. We are training to finish well, to run strong, to hold firm to Christ, to Jesus at the end. And let's be honest, the end will likely be very, very hard. It may involve cancer or terminal illness or some great tragedy, some horrible accident. We will not all go peacefully at the end of a long life. And so you better have somebody training with you, Hebrews is telling us. Somebody to call you alongside and encourage you. You better have a band of brothers. You better have a set of sisters. If we don't, our hearts are vulnerable to becoming hard and unbelieving in the goodness and the promises of God. So now the writer If Hebrews is going to take us back at the end of our passage, back to the book of Numbers again, and that tragedy that happened in the wilderness wanderings, and he repeats the warning for us, don't harden your hearts. And then he goes through six questions of sorts in three sets of two, and the second question effectively answers the first one. This is how it goes. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. He quotes that again. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
so we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Who? Who heard and rebelled? It was those who started so well with Moses. Except for two, Joshua and Caleb. It was those who left Egypt with him, who saw all the great deliverance of God, who witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle, the provision of God every day through, through manna and quail. They were the ones who heard the promises of a good land flowing with milk and honey and rest. And yet they were the ones who rebelled. They are the ones who sinned. They are the ones who gave in to unbelief. God decreed that those who were disobedient, who grumbled against his provision, would not enter his wrath, or his rest, rather. Um, Numbers 14 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I will make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Professor Professor George Guthrie writes that the author of Hebrews associates belief in God so closely with obedience to him that the two are practically indistinguishable. This association grows out of the author's use of the desert wanderers as an example. They were disobedient to the voice of God in the desert because they did not trust him to win them entrance to the land of promise. In one sense, we can say that all sin originates from thinking that God has less than our best interests at heart. The thief doubts God's provision. The sexually immoral person denies the sufficiency of God's design for sexual fulfillment. The religiously proud does not see God's priority on humility. And so we see, the writer says, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Don't follow their example. Don't let your hearts grow hard. Don't let doubts go unchecked. Cling to Jesus and the good promises of God. There's a writer, his name's Ralph Smith, and he made this observation, that children ask roughly 125 questions a day. Adults ask about six questions a day. So somewhere along the line, we lost 119 questions a day. But of the six that you're going to ask today, I want to take two of them and ask you to use them and ask them of yourself. Question number one, is my heart hardening towards God? The language the Bible uses to describe this condition varies. It could be grumbling, it could be unbelief, it could be drifting, it could be doubting, it could be lukewarmness. Jesus described it this way in Luke chapter 8. He said, 
The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Could that describe you? Is, is something choking out your faith? Hardship, pleasures of this life. Is your heart hardening to spiritual things? Are you more interested or less interested in pursuing God in his word and in prayer than you were six months ago? What is your trajectory spiritually? John Piper warns, he says, it's the cavalier Christians who need to be worried about their standing. It's those who were baptized and walked in an aisle or prayed a prayer and took communion and came to church but do not love Jesus or count him their dearest treasure or bank their hope on him and look forward to seeing him and can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. These are the self-assured ones who need to feel insecure. They are people often in the church who treat their salvation like a vaccination. They got the vaccination years ago and assume all is well without giving any thought to the dangers of unbelief around them. They say, I got inoculated against hell when I was eight days old or six years old. And so getting to heaven is not a matter of vigilance over their heart to keep it from becoming hard and unbelieving. It's simply a matter of making sure that the inoculation happened. These are the ones, he says, that are in tremendous danger. So ask yourself, is my heart hardening? Am I drifting? Am I less interested in the things of God than I was, say, six months ago? Second question. Am I encouraging others and being encouraged by other Christ followers, followers regularly? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Faithfulness. George Guthrie says, is communal. Assurance of our salvation is a team sport. Okay? So who's on your team? Who knows you well enough to encourage you, to plead with you, to urge you, to exhort you to follow Christ? And it's caught as much as it's taught. And so... The isolation that Satan uses to draw us away from faithfulness in Christ, um, I see a particular vulnerability amongst our men in this area. It's, it could strike anyone, but I, I'd like to just challenge our men for a minute, brothers, that your example in this matter of community affects your family. If dad is in these kinds of sharpening relationships, the chances are much better that your family will be too. If you don't lead them by your example into these kinds of relationships, you could very well be leading them off a cliff spiritually to a place of hard hearts and unbelief. Faithless male leadership wiped out a generation in the wilderness. And we don't want that to happen to one family here. 
Not even one family. It's a sobering and terrifying reality. If you aren't in these kinds of encouraging and sharpening relationships, where could you start? Who do you know? Who could you talk to? Who could you sit down with and say, I've got to figure this out? Asa Guinness is an author, and he writes about a man who we knew well, John Stott. John Stott was the rector of all souls. Uh, it's a pastor kind of a thing, not an anatomy kind of thing. Um, pastor of All Souls uh, Langham Place in London and a peerless preacher, Bible teacher, evangelist, author, global leader, and he says a friend to many. He says, I knew him over many decades, but I will never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. He says, after an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. He says, lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, Pray that I would be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. Protect us. Grant us faithfulness. Grant us faith in your Son, in Jesus. Help us persevere in holding fast to him. Lord, there are many things around him we don't understand, many questions we have, but to him, help us hold fast. He is our confidence. He is our sure hope. And Lord, I pray especially today for those who are doubting. I pray that Jesus and his loving death, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection would overwhelm their doubts. It would be enough for them to cope with the things that they simply do not know. They cannot sort out. Lord, I pray for those who are drifting, those of us whose hearts are just a little colder now, or just a little less interested now. God, I pray that today your, this warning siren that's being sounded would keep them from wreckage on the rocks and, and many would follow them there. So Lord, give us, give us eyes to see our own hearts as we ask these questions of ourselves. Help us, we pray in the name of Jesus, our matchless Savior. Amen.